Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our health care system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Health Care, to help walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our health care system as it exists and as it could be. For better health care and a better health care system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman, founder of the DrScore.com physician rating website. Our medical care system is designed to help treat us when we're sick, but it's even better if it can keep us well. The federal agency that has great responsibility for this, one that you may have heard of, is the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. To tell us about the CDC and what it does, we have with us today Dr. Janet Collins. She's Associate Director for Program at the CDC, and in this role, she provides leadership and guidance in promoting CDC priorities across the agency. Dr. Collins, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Could you start off telling our listeners a little bit about the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, and what it's supposed to do? Absolutely, and um, thanks for the invitation to join you today. Um, the CDC um, is a federal agency. Um, we're located in Atlanta, though, um, stemming from our uh, history 60 years ago in malaria uh, protection. But these days, we're really the nation's prevention agency, um, looking to prevent disease, looking to prevent injury, uh, looking to protect health and promote quality of life uh, for U.S. citizens. And uh, actually, some of our activities extend abroad. So when I think CDC, I think of the Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report magazine that I started getting when I was in medical school many years ago and a, and a heavy focus on infectious diseases. But it really goes way beyond that. Well, that's exactly right. I think perhaps we're best known in those areas, um, uh, you know, again, given our history sort of stemming from that work. But when we stop to look at what really is impacting people's lives in terms of their health, um, you're rapidly confronted with sort of modern era concerns of tobacco use and obesity and diabetes, heart disease. These are the leading uh, killers in the country. And if, you know, our mission is basically to promote health and prevent disease and to improve quality of life, it was absolutely clear that we had to turn our mission to uh, include those areas as well. Very good. Now, I understand the CDC has a focus on what are termed winnable battles. Um, what are those? So um, we have benefited tremendously from um, having a new director on board just over a year now, Dr. Thomas Frieden. He came out of uh, his work as Commissioner of Health in New York City and came with the passion that um, you need to identify a set of areas where you really want to accelerate progress because they have so much potential impact on the health of Americans. 
And by identifying these priorities, we can uh, really, you know, push forward in a set of areas while at the same time not leaving our full portfolio of work behind by any means. Um, but the winnable battles that he set out um, are tobacco control, HIV prevention, uh, health care-associated infections, the whole area of nutrition, obesity and physical activity, as well as food safety, uh, motor vehicle injury prevention, and then teen and unintended pregnancy prevention. So it, it cuts a fairly wide swath, but each of those were selected because of their profound impact on health, and that linked to the fact that we have scientific evidence about things we can do to really improve the situation in pretty meaningful ways. How did teen pregnancy make the list? That doesn't sound like a health problem. Oh, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Um, well, unfortunately, the vast, vast majority of these teen pregnancies are unintended pregnancies, and they carry with them all kinds of long-term uh, challenges for these teens, including sort of a cycle of poverty from one generation to the next. Teen pregnancies are also linked to uh, much higher rates of preterm births, uh, low birth weight babies, um, so you have, uh, you know, challenges around the health of the baby for these young mothers, as well as the whole, um, you know, the whole challenge around the teen mom's life and the challenges she faces because of education being interrupted and other issues like that. So um, that is an area that we feel we can do much more in and that it will have uh, really intergenerational uh, effects in terms of quality of life. That seems like the kind of uh, issue that might end up being a political football. Well, you know, it's um, interesting. I've always been one. I've worked in that area actually for years now. It's a, a, an area of mine um, for probably 20 years. And I, I find that there's ways to achieve uh, agreement on the goal because basically, uh, the, again, the teen pregnancies are unintended um, and everyone wants to lower those rates, wants to lower rates of abortion, wants to lower rates of unintended pregnancy, and always from the start of uh, an abstinence perspective and then uh, coupled with an abstinence perspective, making sure these young girls have the services they need to um, make these life choices. But it can be a dicey area to be sure, but I think there's more commonality than differences when you look at the goals of the various perspectives on this issue. Like so many things in life, I think the ultimate goals that people have are very much shared. And, gosh, the way they can, one side of an issue will demonize somebody on the other side when they're really the ultimate goal is that they have is, is, is truly the same. I mean, I, I, this is a, a beautiful example of that. You have people who would be, consider themselves, well, I think they consider the other side pro-abortionists, and the other side considers the other side, uh, you know, uh, for trying to control other people's lives. They would all, both agree abortions are bad. How do you how, do you get them to talk? Do, do you do you get bring both sides together in your, in the CD's work on this topic? Um, absolutely. In fact, um, I remember a meeting now, um, probably a year back at this point, where um, our our um, 
Health and Human Services Department actually did exactly that and brought the various um, spokespersons uh, together to really uh, come to understanding. And actually a, a small document came out of that where the group really achieved what are the commonalities, where do we uh, have agreements, where do we differ, and how can we join forces to work on those parts of the puzzle that we're in complete agreement about. Um, so um, I, I, it was an interesting process and I think did some, actually some good in, for the field. Well, that's wonderful to hear that there's, there's uh, in this world that we live in now, that there's people who are able to get together and talk and, and mediate um, this reminds me that um, uh, of some years back, um, our former senator, um, uh, Jesse Helms, uh, if I remember right, was trying to stonewall the CDC from doing HIV survey work that would assess people's sexual activities. Do I have that right? Do you remember? I, I don't. I'm, I'm sorry that... Um, that passed me by, I'm afraid. Very well. Well, I... Um, I had the sense that some of the same kind of issues occur there where, um, yes, the, uh, surely the, the goal is to um, prevent the spread of HIV, to uh, eliminate it as a scourge, but that there might be, um, again, political issues. Is that, is that an issue now with the CDC's efforts in reducing HIV infections? I wouldn't um, say too much, although um, your description reminds me that I haven't said much about our, our data efforts, and they are so key to the work that we do here. Um, we manage, you know, just a tremendous amount of the nation's uh, data systems that track and follow and under help understand, for example, some of the disparities in these issues. Of course, certain population groups defined by race or age or sex or even geographic location are burdened more significantly by some of these, <clears throat> excuse me, important health problems. And the data that we keep is so critical to our program planning, to understanding where programs need to be delivered, and whether they're having the kind of effect that we need to have in these areas. So, um, you know, certainly the data issue is not a place that we take too much heat, frankly, because it uh, really serves the purpose of an honest broker of understanding where do we stand on these issues? Are we making progress? Are we moving backwards? What seems to be working and the like? So, you know, in the HIV arena, for example, our, our data systems are, are very strong and we, you know, understand our successes and, and what more has to be done. And I, I think that data also helps sort of bring people to the table um, to, you know, to have those kind of off, uh, honest exchanges and really <clears throat> figure out how to move forward. I'm familiar with a number of surveys done by the National Center for Health Statistics. Is that a separate agency from the CDC or are they coordinated? Um, well, that's one of our centers. So we have, a, you know, about that, 10 centers. We would have a, excuse me? So, so that's within the CDC? Correct. Oh, excellent. Yeah, can you tell t tell um, our audience a little bit about what that center does? Um, sure. So um, they uh, c design, collect, and house and analyze the um, survey data that is collected on a routine basis. So, you know, a number of your listeners may have gotten a call at some time saying, would they participate in one of the CDC surveys that um, – uh, is asking questions about health status and access to health care and the like. And um, uh, those data are publicly available and, again, you know, uh, hopefully drive um, 
for example, monitoring the nation's health objectives. Uh, uh, we've had national health objectives now for three decades, and all those data are the data that are used to monitor how the nation's doing and, and uh, you know, what more needs to be done. So um, certainly, a, a, you know, a good uh, place to take a look on our website for um, data that, you know, that may be interesting to those of you that are, you know, working in this area. Uh, I think um, this is one of my favorite uses of American tax dollars, the um, survey work that's available on the web from the National Center for Health Statistics is just extraordinary. I think uh, listeners might visit that site to pull out some of the reports that the center um, prepares, but uh, I, it's just amazing that the richness of the the data that are made available publicly for free to researchers who can just download it and, and do research studies with it is, is a phenomenal resource. Well, well thank you. I'll, I'll tell them you said so. No, yeah, I'll, uh, I should send them a, a, a director a letter. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's, let's take on one more of these um, preventable battles. Um, well, specifically, let's, let's, let's go back to HIV. Can, when we say HIV is a preventative battle, are we going to get rid of that as a disease? Or are we going to stop the spread? Well, um, at this point, you know, really looking to stop the, the spread. And the major way that that's being accomplished right now is um, uh, individuals who are infected when they know they're infected and they're in care are, are just much less likely to transmit the infection to others. However, if you're HIV infected and you're unaware of your infection, the chances of you, um, you know, passing that infection along to other sexual partners is enormously high. So a lot of our work is focused on um, uh, helping at-risk populations um, receive testing and understand their status and uh, connect those that are HIV positive into care. Obviously, they benefit from the care with improved quality of life uh, as they uh, cope with their infection. But also, uh, it almost immediately trans awareness of infection almost immediately translates to uh, reducing or eliminating spread. Years ago, I think there were tremendous psychosocial concerns around the issue of just being tested and the, and the um, privacy um, issues surrounding it. Are those issues the same as they once were, or is that changing? I, I think it's probably changed to a point. I guess it's a pretty personal decision in terms of how comfortable people are with that. Um, but testing is, you know, cheap, readily available. A lot of people uh, avail themselves of that. Um, of course, there's high confidentiality in terms of connection to care. Um, so, I, you know, I certainly hope that um, people would um, not avoid, you know, that service and that opportunity, you know, because of those fears. I, I think they really can be worked through, and I think things are probably a lot more open and a lot more comfortable with that, but, but I'm certain that fear still exists uh, for some. Does the CDC think that mandatory testing for the entire population would be a sensible way of, of, of stopping spread of the disease, given how effective it is once you know? No, I, I don't, you know, really think we've um, gone that direction. Um, uh, 
uh, I'm not an expert in the area, but, um, you know, it, uh, it's just an issue of knowing what your risk status is and uh, understanding whether you should be tested and then doing so on a routine basis. You know, even if you swept through the country at one point in time and tested everybody, it uh, is not really going to be a workable solution for the long run. So we really focus on populations at highest risk, populations hardest hit by HIV infection, and working really through the communities at a grassroots level to uh, make sure the services are there that people need. You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. We're speaking today with Dr. Janet Collins, CDC's Associate Director for Program. Uh, Dr. Collins, I noticed that uh, your background is not in uh, microbiology, not in the study of um, you know, of viruses or bacterial pathogens, the things that I used to associate with the CDC. You're um, a behavioral science a scientist. Uh, you have a PhD in educational psychology. Um, when I look at these preventative battles that the CDC wants to wage, tobacco, obesity, um, automobile issues, those kinds of things make me think of, of uh, personal behavior and and, and psychology. Um, right, uh, a- a- absolutely. And, you know, the CDC is a very interesting agency because of its sort of multidisciplinary approach. So we certainly have the, the vi- virologists and the, uh, the, the MDs and all uh, 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 nurses, a whole wide variety of health professionals here. But it actually makes, I think, for a more robust attack on these issues uh, coming from these uh, various fields. But indeed, some of these fields like tobacco use, uh, uh, nutrition, overweight, uh, physical activity and the like are uh, behaviorally based. And so, you know, I've definitely found a very nice career for myself uh, moving from that behavioral science background into thinking about these complex problems and how you motivate people uh, to make the choices that will make their life healthier. And I, I think we've really... Um, come to a new understanding of um, how best to do that. And I, I would say it's sort of simply that individuals are, are nested in their families, in their homes, communities, and neighborhoods. And if you make these choices and behaviors enormously difficult to achieve, if, this, you know, if your neighborhood isn't safe, if you don't have lights so that you can walk after work, uh, if you don't have access to fresh fruits and vegetables that are affordable, it's becomes very, very difficult to do what all the experts are telling you to do in the way of healthy behavior. So um, I guess that might even be more of a sociological approach to these problems than a psychological one. But I think the interface of how you motivate and inform consumers, but then how you actually change the physical and social environment to be more supportive of health. I'm just amazed that you chose these things as the winnable battles. I would have thought, okay, a winnable battle is um, I got a vaccine, I vaccinate my population, I've won the battle. But you're taking on trying to motivate individuals as a, a winnable battle. Who, 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 who thought that, that that's something you're going to be successful at? Well, we know we've been successful at it um, now, and, and it's obviously not to say that we're not doing our vaccine-preventable work. I mean, in some, uh, that is our bread and butter, and, and we do it well. But, um, you know, we've had tremendous success in this country over the last uh, 30 years in getting the tobacco rate halved. Um, 
so we know that we can do these things. The motor vehicle injury rate is dropping dramatically. And it's not random. It's happening because of changes in the environment. It's happening because of smoke-free laws. It's happening because of primary seatbelt uh, laws. It's, it's happening, uh, you know, uh, through activities and actions like those. So um, the other, you know, the other reason to focus here is, the outcomes are so important to health in this country. And you figure tobacco, on average, takes uh, 14 or 15 years off somebody's life with tremendous uh, medical costs at the end of life and, and, you know, just not good outcomes in terms of cancer and cardiovascular disease. You know, they're terribly important areas um, that there's some good research on, and we just really need to get to the you know, we really need to get these actions taken so that we can uh, keep that uh, lifespan lengthening and keep that quality of life improving in this country. I want you to um, uh, clarify for me one issue about the cost. Uh, you say that um, tobacco takes 14 years or so off somebody's life. Okay, that's that's a huge cost. But then you suffer with these end-of-life costs are the end-of-life costs for somebody who smoked different from the end-of-life costs for somebody like me who's just a total non-smoker? It seems like when you get to that last year, you're going to have the same costs either way. Yeah, it can be. And, again, I'm certainly not an economist, an expert in this area. But, um, you know, if you um, look at the, um, the medical investment in the last year of a 55-year-old versus the last year of a 90-year-old, um, those are apt to look quite a bit different. Um, so um, it, it is primarily a cost to those touched by the loss of the loved one, to be sure. Um, but I think, you know, there's, there are other issues around living with long-term chronic illness um, that is driven by something like tobacco use. So living with, you know, long-term uh, lung disease or congestive heart failure or long-term cardiovascular issues that would have been much shorter in nature at, uh, a, for a non-smoker at the end of life, but are much more protracted um, over what you would might consider sort of um, middle years or, you know, maybe, you know, very healthy years, you end up with chronic illnesses like heart disease and a, and a very lengthy chronic care situation um, driven, driven by the use of tobacco. Okay. Well, so the, um, well, I remember um, those, those morbidity mortality weekly reports and if there was like three cases of measles, uh, you know, it was like a horror. <laughs> um, tobacco is a windmill battle in that we've reduced it in half. You know, I guess that's great because, like you say, the overall impact is just absolutely enormous. It makes great sense to be focusing on these things. Um, but obesity, are you telling me you're optimistic and that this is a winnable battle? Well, I, I am optimistic um, and I think it's interesting to just see what's happened to date. I, I don't know exactly what we would say. Maybe five years ago or so it became just 
front and center in the public dialogue, wouldn't you say, in terms of media and all bringing it to the attention of the American people? It had perhaps been going on all this time, but not nearly as well understood or well known uh, to the general public. And already we're seeing slowing in the obesity rates. Um, we're seeing some stagnation, especially among women, where the rates had been climbing, climbing, climbing year after year, and now they're starting to stabilize. Um, and perhaps we can turn that stabilization into uh, uh, actual reductions. But the first stage is, you know, getting the word out, getting people aware, making it an issue. And then the, the second stage is, um, okay, those were the fairly easy wins. Now what is it we need to do in our environment to really drive these rates down? You know, what does our physical activity in the schools look like? Uh, what does our food look like in work sites, in schools? Uh, you know, what are some of the strategies that we can use to um, heighten uh, healthy eating, heighten physical activity, and, and get this turned around? You mentioned that one of the reasons these things were chosen as winnable battles is because there were proven strategies. Are there proven strategies for obesity? Yeah, in terms of obesity prevention, you know, we're really, uh, it's kind of a basic equation, right? It's fairly simple. Um, eat healthier foods. So we're really working in areas that um, focus on reducing the consumption of very high caloric, sort of low-nutrient uh, products. So, you know, sugar-sweetened beverages are, uh, you know, one example. Other, you know, some fast foods, some uh, junk food items, you know, really looking at reducing um, uh, consumption of these products and at the same time increasing physical activity. And um, you just look to your you look to your systems and way of doing that. Uh, the YMCA's have been a fantastic partner with us over the years. Um, to uh, work with us on uh, increasing physical activity in communities. But, again, you know, you look at what can the schools do. Can work sites uh, help in some way to uh, help, for example, subsidize uh, connection to a, um, a, a, you know, a physical activity gym or whatever? Um, you know, what are all the things that we can do to get physical activity increased? Um, and and uh, and nutrition improved. So we have a clearly proven strategy: take in less calories, burn more calories. Okay, right. And that's it. But do we have ways of actually getting people that, to change their behaviors? And, and and I guess we should ask: change them in the long run. Well, um, I you know I think. I think we have some um, very good ideas about this. Um, there was a very nice study done at NIH um, uh, working with programs that changed basically the lifestyles of individuals to increase activity and change uh, dietary patterns, and those have held up in long, uh, long-term ways, which is very encouraging. But I, I think really the most likely strategies here for long-term success are ones that actually change the environment in some way. Um, again, you can have the best intentions in the world, but if there's not a park or playground within walking distance or you have to get in the car every time you need to do anything at all. So you look at things like um, the built environment and um, road and city design issues and how various metro systems are designed to connect to 
suburban and city areas. And, you know, all of these things people have studied to see, you know, what is the effect on walking of having an accessible park? What is the effect on walking of having an accessible metro system and the, and the like? And so, you know, we're learning a lot about how to shape the environment to encourage healthy behavior um, rather than it just being kind of a personal responsibility issue all the time. Well, ultimately, yes, I, I can see how the, the the personal responsibility is synergistic with the environment. Exactly. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the program today. Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Um, no, I, I really appreciate being on. And um, if you're using tobacco, please access your state quit line and let us help. And um, it's just been a pleasure to talk with everybody. How, how do you find the state quit line? I've not heard of this. Oh, yeah, just um, your, um, let's see if I have it in front of me here. Um, I don't. Let, let me get, can I get back to you on that? Uh, absolutely. Can you just. I will make sure that our listeners get that. No question okay, about great. it. Okay, great. Great, because there's a 1-800-QUIT-NOW is probably what it is, but I don't, I don't want to send people to the wrong mm-hmm. phone number. I think it's 1-800-QUIT-NOW, but it's accessible Across the entire nation, it's a free service, and you can get help to quit, and it helps uh, considerably above trying to do it yourself, although that's a good idea, too. I, I may put uh, a sign up about that in, in my dermatology office. Probably every thank physician you. should consider doing that. Well, thank, thank you. Dr. Collins, thank you for being on the program today. You bet. Bye-bye. Controlling and preventing disease takes many forms. I certainly used to think of the CDC as the agency responsible for identifying new threats to human health like HIV infection and other strange infectious processes. But when you think about it, uh, controlling, preventing disease, there's a whole lot more common stuff. And it's neat to see what the CDC does. It's, it's, this is just a beautiful example of how you know, I was thinking one thing about it. And when you peel back the curtain, you find out they do so much more addressing diseases and conditions like ADHD, birth defects, cancer, diabetes, a whole list of things, being responsible for a role in emergency preparedness like bioterrorism, chemical and radiation emergencies, even severe weather problems. Uh, Disease control and prevention includes environmental health, healthy living, even nutrition, injury prevention, workplace health safety, traveler's health as well. You can learn a lot about this at the CDC's website at www.cdc.gov. It's interesting to, to see that they focus their winnable battles on the common things that affect people's health. Things like tobacco control, and I, you, you could just sense Dr. Collins' passion for tobacco control. Uh, she, she, um, she pointed out a great way to, um, a great resource for people who are trying to quit is that quit now line. Uh, so for support in, in getting, um, for supporting quitting, uh, including free quit coaching, a free quit plan, free educational materials, and referral to local resources, you can call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. That's 1-800-784-8669. Again, if you're looking to quit smoking, 
Check this out. 1-800-QUIT-NOW. That's 1-800-784-8669. Well, I want to thank you for joining us uh, on the program today. Next week, we'll be joined by Susan Keen Baker. She's an expert on patient satisfaction, helps physician offices work towards improving their patient's satisfaction. Until then, I wish you the very best of health. Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember to go to DrScore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to healthcare empowerment. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com, DrScore.com. And we'll see you next week right here on Getting Better Healthcare.